And once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you're new with us, we welcome you. And let you know we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we come to chapter 3, verse 22, start with. And so let's read together. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. You know, <laughs> I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more interesting person in the Bible than John the Baptist. What fascinates me most about John was the simplicity with which he lived his life. I mean, he lived out in the wilderness, sleeping under the stars, ate a diet of locusts and wild honey. I mean, John really had nothing uh, in life that we would consider essential for having a happy life. And yet, as we study John's life, he did lead a joyful and fulfilled life. Now, the question is, what was John's secret? What was John's secret? What can we learn from his life that will help us to live a life of joy, joyful fulfillment? And let me just start by saying this. These are not profound insights, but they come right out of the text. We'll start looking at them this week, finish next week, God willing. But what was it that John had? I mean, he didn't have anything with regard to earthly riches or material things. So what was it that made John so fulfilled in life, so joyful. Well, the first thing is John had purpose in life. You know, study after study, and I went online yesterday to kind of look at some of these things to make sure I was uh, relating this accurately, but many studies have shown that people that have purpose in life live a longer and more fulfilled life. I believe this has kind of been corroborated by the number of people who die not long after they have retired. And these are the ones pretty much that have no other interests than work, no hobbies, no friends. All their friends were friends at work. And they're not going to work anymore. They've retired, so they have no friends. They really have no reason for getting up in the morning, all right, at this point in their life. You know, God has made us with a need to be productive. And uh, that comes from having purpose in life. I mean, no purpose means no productiveness. No productiveness means that we really have no reason to go on living. At least that's how some people think. And uh, this can lead to increased alcohol consumption. Um, I'm thinking again of those folks who have retired and uh, have nothing now to do with their lives. There's no ultimate meaning or no other purpose than work. They're retired now, so uh, they spend all day really drinking. Uh, maybe um, increased drug usage because um, they're feeling very empty inside. And of course, worst case scenario, um, often they commit suicide. We absolutely need a sense of purpose to survive. Without it, life becomes kind of a meaningless, mind-numbing exercise in futility and despair. And folks, for most people, a job isn't enough. A career isn't, for some folks, yeah. They, they live for the job, they live for the career. That's all they need, all they want. But for most folks, those are not enough to give them any kind of real purpose in life. The Bible says that God has put, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, God has put eternity in our hearts. In other words, God has put into the heart of man a sense that we exist for more, for more than just this life. That there, is an, that there is an ultimate purpose in life beyond, you know, surviving or living to make money to buy more and more things, experience more and more pleasure, something that God has kind of hardwired hard into our DNA. When we talk about the necessity of a person's life, uh, having meaning and purpose, guys, understand it all begins with knowing and believing that God created you on purpose for a purpose. That's essential. In other words, guys, you are no accident. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you listen to 
most evolutionists, well, all evolutionists probably, and scientists, they believe we are just a big cosmic accident. There's no ultimate reason for us existing. Uh, my Bible uh, disputes that. Okay, In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says, starting with verse 8, he said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We get to heaven is the idea. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things. Listen, he planned for us long ago. Paul is saying that God created you on purpose for a purpose. And this was especially true of John the Baptist. Even before John was conceived, I mean hundreds of years before his parents were even born, God had a purpose for John and prophesied of his coming. 700 years before John was born, God said to the prophet Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, I'm going to send you a man. He is going to be the forerunner of my Messiah. He will be a voice crying out in the wilderness telling people, get ready, he's coming. 400 years before John was born, he said to the prophet Malachi, Behold, I am sending my messenger before my Messiah. And then many centuries later, God sent the angel Gabriel to a very godly Jewish priest named Zacharias, whose wife Elizabeth had been barren for many years, and gave them a remarkable promise in their old age. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 13, the angel Gabriel said, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. Now that's interesting, because at this time, at this point, Zechariah and his wife are elderly, maybe in their late 70s, early 80s. And the angel Gabriel says, Zechariah, God heard your prayer for a son. Now, they probably stopped praying that prayer 30 or 40 years earlier. Because, I mean, after all, they were past the age of childbearing, right? <laughs> Isn't it interesting with God, nothing is impossible. And all our prayers don't just go up into the sky and evaporate. They go up to heaven and they enter into God's active box. And when the time is right for everything, there is a purpose. A time for everything, there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. When the time is right, God says, okay. And many times after years of praying for something, maybe a husband or a wife that's unsaved, or a wayward child, or some kind of physical infirmity, You've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and almost given up hope. Maybe you have given up hope and you've stopped praying. Those prayers don't, they don't cease to exist. God at one point says it's time. And he begins to move. And eyes are open and marriages are healed. And wayward children are brought home. It's an incredible thing. So after many years of not praying for a son, the angel Gabriel says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to a son, and you are to call his name John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will prepare the people, Israel, for the coming of their Messiah. And so, guys, even from the womb, before he was ever born, God had a purpose for John's life. Listen, even as he has got a purpose for your life, a purpose we, which he had planned from even before you were conceived, but definitely as you are being knit together. The Bible talks about how God knit us together in the womb. Poetic language, right? But even as God was preparing you in the womb, the person you would be, he was thinking of the calling or the purpose he had for your life. People say, well, that sounds ridiculous. I mean, how can I be called into ministry even from my mother's womb. Well, isn't that Paul's testimony? Galatians 1.15. Paul said, God called me as an apostle even from my mother's womb. What does that mean? Well, the family I was born into. Paul was a Jew born into a Jewish a rabbinic family. He was actually not a rabbinic family. He wasn't a Levite. He was of, tri of the tribe of Benjamin. But he was born into a very religious family. His father was a Pharisee, probably his father before him. 
He was born among Gentiles, so he didn't, wasn't born in the land of Israel. And this allowed him to grow up with Gentiles, understand the Gentile culture. And then at the age of 12, after he was 13, when he was bar mitzvah, his father sent him off to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the seven great, greatest teachers in Israel's history where he was rooted in Judaism, so that when God finally called him, he was completely equipped for the work God would, was calling him to do, to be a voice to the Gentiles. When I say God called you from your mother's womb for the purpose he had for your life, I mean the family you were born into, the time in history you were born. Remember what Mordecai said to his cousin Esther, who was queen uh, in Persia. And she was afraid to do something that might cost her her life on behalf of her Jewish people. And Mordecai said, Mordecai said, Esther, how do you know, but you haven't been born for such a time as this? Everyone in this room has been born for such a time as this. We are no accident. God purposely knit us together uh, in the womb at this time in human history, planted us in this country, and everything about us. Again, your, your gender, your race, the family you were born into, uh, the economic uh, situation you were born into, whether you were wealthy or, or poor or middle class, all the talents and abilities that God gave you when you were born. All of these he has been working in you, he knit together in you, uh, shaping and molding you for the ministry he was going to call you into. And of course, you weren't called into that ministry officially when you were born. So whatever years it took for you to actually become a Christian and finally God directing you into ministry. All those years he was growing you and preparing you through the good experiences and the bad for the work he was shaping and molding you into who you are today for his divine purposes. Now that you're a Christian, he's got your entire life mapped out. I'm talking about your ministry life. He knows exactly everything he wants you to accomplish for his glory and his kingdom. The question is, will you submit to his will and fulfill the purpose for which he has made you and he is now calling you into? You don't have to. I'm convinced a lot of folks uh, could have served God powerfully in their lives, but chose not to? The question this morning is, the question this morning is, are you going to submit to God's will for your life? Are you going to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. I want to be in your service. I want to be used by you for your glory. I mean, John was the kind of man who knew what he was supposed to do with his life. And, you know, a lot of us don't get that kind of clear calling as John did. I mean, from the time he was just a little boy, his parents knew what the angel said. And so I'm convinced that from the time John was born, to, at the time he, from the time he could, he could understand um, what his mom and dad were telling him, they kept reinforcing to him how God had a call upon his life how he was a special child called from the womb. Remember when, uh, when Elizabeth uh, was visited by Mary and Mary spoke and Elizabeth said, the baby in my womb just leapt for joy. I mean, from his mother's womb, John knew his calling, which was to, you know, to, to announce to the world Jesus, the Messiah, was coming. We, most of us don't get that clear a call. Okay, uh, where, you know, our parents from the time we were just little toddlers began to reinforce in us the call that God had for us because they didn't really know. But I know this, if more Christian parents would reinforce to their little kids, look, God has got a call on your life. God has got a purpose for which he created you. The, your, your responsibility is to grow and to draw close to God and to, and to pursue God's will for your life. He will reveal that to you. John knew his calling. He knew what his purpose was. And in Mark chapter 1, if you turn there, we read starting in verse 4 about John the Baptist, how he was in the wilderness, and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had turned to God, 
to receive forgiveness for their sins. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they had confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist for food. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, John was called to reach the world, the world of the Jewish people primarily. But to effectively do that, he stayed separate from the world. Guys, listen. He could have been supported by the wealthiest people in Jerusalem. I mean, he could have conducted his ministry in the most luxurious homes in town. He could have ate the finest food, been clothed with the finest clothes that money could buy, other people's money. Because there would have been plenty of people, rich people in Jerusalem, who would want to ally themselves with John, support his ministry, because you know what? A lot of wealthy people love to hitch their wagon to some celebrity star. John was, could have been, didn't allow himself to be, he could have been a true celebrity back then. He was the first prophet to come down the pike in over 400 years. For 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, the, between the Testaments, there was no uh, prophet in Israel. No one saying, thus says the Lord. The nation was brokenhearted. They thought God had forsaken them. And then just about the time they had given all hope up for ever hearing the voice of God again, here comes some character in the wilderness shouting, uh, Messiah is coming, make straight the path, prepare your heart, Messiah is coming. A voice crying out in the wilderness. And I'm sure that a lot of, a lot of wealthy people would have loved to run alongside John and prop him up, give him everything he needed for ministry. But John was totally dependent on the Lord. He knew that if he was going to conduct his ministry to the world, he had to remain separate from the world. That's how, how was the reason why he was so successful. And that's a lot of the reason why so many men uh, fall, because they let money get the best of them. Billy Graham used to say there are three things that the devil has used quite effectively to destroy men in ministry. The God, he, he, he talked about, um, uh, he talked about the, uh, the glory um, the gold and, and the girls. Thank you. God, uh, the gold, glory, and the girls. Yes, not that the women are the only ones, obviously, uh, at fault of these guys uh, pursue it. But my point is that John knew if he was going to be effective, he had to remain separate from the world. In, in other words, guys... John kept the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing in our Christian life? Jesus. Simple, isn't it? It's Jesus. For John, it was Jesus and introducing people to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus, preaching the gospel to people's hearts, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say what you will about John, and boy, people have you know, laughed at John, mocked John. He was definitely a colorful character. But say what you will about John, he was focused. He was focused. Going back to John chapter 3, verse 22, we read again, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So Herod had not yet imprisoned John, and he would remain in prison until he was beheaded. Um, but at this point, John and Jesus were ministering alongside each other. Their ministries were overlapping. Uh, Jesus, uh, his disciples, were baptizing uh, in Judea. John and his ba uh, disciples were baptizing in Anon, near Salim, a lot of scholars think that uh, that was up in the area of Samaria, uh, that, uh, that Anon was close to Shechem, uh, which we're going to talk about next week. Uh, or actually, we get into chapter 4 in a couple weeks. But um, I don't think there was any, you know, Anon means spring, so there's a lot of springs of water there. Salim means peace. Uh, so the area was, you know, springs of peace, you might say, but I don't really think that there was any spiritual reason why John was up there baptizing. A couple of practical reasons. We read there's a lot of water up there. 
okay? I mean, just if you're baptizing people, big crowd, you need water, right? Because he was practicing immersion, total immersion, right? His disciples were also probably helping with the baptism because there was multitudes that would come still in John's ministry. And therefore, he needed some help. So a lot of water, a lot of people can get baptized at one time, very practical reason. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, if we're going to be led by God, it has to be some kind of supernatural uh, experience, you know. Uh, the lights all of a sudden dim, you know. We hear the faint song of the angels, and then suddenly God says, you know, thus says, the, you know, whatever. And we think, you know, that's how God leads our life. No, God leads us very simply, very practically. My pastor used to like to say that he moved from inland California to the beach cities, and that's where Calvary Chapel began, and that's how the ministry started to flourish. And people said, Chuck, what moved you from the, the, the inner part of the state to the coastline? I mean, what did God do? What, did, did he give you a sign some way to get you? To, Chuck said, well, actually, I, I'd like to surf. And, you know, and there's a lot, there's water there by the coast, so I, that's what got me out there. Okay. God will often lead us in supernatural, natural ways. Okay. I mean, the heart of a good man, woman, is ordered by the Lord. So if your heart's right with God, you love him. You know, yeah, there are times he'll speak to you kind of clearly about something. Other times you're just going about your business. And all of a sudden, an opportunity opens up. And just be sensitive to that. But, um, but, but secondly, why was John up in the area of Samaria? He had been conducting his ministry down in Judea. Well, I think that very simply is because John didn't want to compete with the Lord Jesus. Um, Jesus was now here. Uh, Judea was where Jerusalem was located. That would be ground zero for Jesus' ministry. And you know what? John did not want to compete with his Lord. And so he wanted Jesus to have the preeminence in ministry, uh, to be supreme. So John withdrew up north and conducted his ministry up there. And, um, you know, John's ministry was simply to, again, well, let me say this, okay? Uh, let me just stop briefly and talk about uh, the baptism of John one more time. We've already touched on this, but I, I see some new faces, and we're, because we're talking about John baptizing here, uh, let me just say this quickly. Understand that John's baptism was not Christian baptism. We've talked about that. Uh, the Jews practiced a form of baptism before Christianity began, all right? Uh, and what the Jewish people would do is when they would go to the temple to worship, uh, all around the temple area, there were these uh, places where you would walk down a few steps into a, uh, a, a pool that was carved out of the stone, filled with water. These were called mikvahs, mikvahs, and they were ceremonial cleansing pools. The idea was they went down into the mikvah and they washed themselves. And the idea was they were repenting of their sins. They were washing away any defilement uh, as they had come in contact with the world. Uh, so literally, it was a symbolic thing, but literally, as they washed in this water, it signified they were cleansing themselves in preparation for going into the temple and worshiping God, communing with God. And the washing away of the dirt from the body kind of symbolized how they were being purified from the defilement of the world. In New Testament times, if people wanted to convert to Judaism or proselytize, uh, they went through a ceremony uh, ceremonial washing referred to as baptism. Now, as Christians in Christian baptism, we know that what we do is we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then we baptize a person after they're saved, all right? After they've received Christ as Lord and Savior, then we dip them into the water. They identify with Christ's death, burial, and then resurrection. The idea is we want our friends and family to know that we now belong to Jesus uh, we have entered into a covenant with him. We're not the same person. And our life from this moment on is going to be used to glorify our Lord. We're going to serve Jesus now and live for him. But John's baptism preceded Messiah's coming. Christian baptism, we receive Messiah, then we get baptized. John was baptizing people in preparation for them receiving the coming of Messiah. And in that regard, guys, John's baptism was more on the order of a, of a ritual purification. 
using the Jordan as a kind of a mikvah, if you will. And uh, again, that was the Jewish people's way of repenting of their sins and purifying themselves in preparation for receiving Messiah when he came. So the first point in our outline, why was it that John was able to live such a, a fulfilled, joyful life? Well, first of all, John had purpose in life. He knew he was a man sent by God to announce to Israel the coming of Messiah. And uh, that greatly contributed to John's sense of joy and fulfillment. It, there's no greater joy in this life. Listen to me now. There is no greater joy in this life than fulfilling the purpose for which God has called you and created you. And you have to experience that to understand what I'm talking about. Because a lot of folks, you know, they can't understand how they could ever be satisfied as a Christian. Because Christians don't, are not into the things of the world anymore. They go to church. They read the Bible. They have prayer meetings. How, is that, how in the world is that going to satisfy me? Well, that's all part of drawing close to God. As you draw close to God, he directs your life in the paths he has chosen for you. And there's no greater joy than fulfilling the purpose for which God has created you. So, first of all, in our outline, John had purpose in life. And secondly, and we'll just start this one this week and finish it next week, John maintained the proper perspective in life. First of all, he rested in God's sovereignty. He rested in God's sovereignty, verse 27, but we'll start with verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews. The Jews would be a title for the Jewish religious leadership, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests. By the way, about purification. They were always arguing about purification, okay? The fact that they all practiced it was obvious. They all did. But they got so crazy that you didn't just wash yourself, and that was it. Now you were ready to you know, enter the presence of God or eat your food, especially with the hand washings before they ate. They had this big, elaborate thing, and they're pouring water. and they, It was really ridiculous. And, you know, and, and so they were always arguing about the correct way to purify themselves and so on. So here comes a dispute between the disciples of John and the Jewish religious leadership about purification. But, uh, but during the course of this dispute, um, John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John, remember the one you introduced. Remember you said, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. He said, Now he's conducting ministry. He's baptizing with his disciples, although chapter 4, verse 2 says Jesus didn't baptize, only his disciples baptized. But everyone's going to him now. What do you say about that? How do you feel about that? Aren't you mad? What did John say, verse 27? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Can you just underline that or something? A man, a woman can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Guys, that is a statement of divine sovereignty. Look, first of all, it's always sad when a spirit of competition arises between those who are serving the Lord. It's always sad. We're not competing with each other. We're fighting against the devil. But John refused to fall into that trap. Well, John, what do you think? Aren't you mad? John refused to fall into that trap. John rested in the fact that his whole life was under the sovereign control of God. He, he really understood God's sovereignty in his life. Therefore, whatever happened, well, he accepted it as something God was doing. Maybe God was redirecting him. Maybe God was whatever God was doing, but God is God. And so he just rested in that. And, uh, and even though John still enjoyed a great deal of popularity, even at this point in his ministry, and, and multitudes were still coming to him to be baptized, he rightly understood, guys, that his ministry was a gift from God, listen, for a certain length of time. Of course, that time wasn't until Messiah came. And now that Christ had come, he was happy, listen, he was happy to fade into the background to let Jesus take center stage. In this regard... John was a true example of humility. He didn't try to hang on to the crowds or his celebrity. And he didn't become bitter when uh, the crowds started going to Jesus. He knew his ministry had been given to him from above. 
And now that it was finished or fulfilled, he needed to accept and rest in God's sovereign will, that his ministry was over and now Jesus had begun. You know what? John did accept that, didn't he? I mean, he was comfortable in just doing what... See, he didn't get his fingerprints all over the ministry. He never owned the ministry. He served in the ministry, but he never owned the ministry in the sense it was his. Get out of the way. That's my ministry. I've heard people basically say that very thing. You give them a ministry, and it's pretty much it's like, you know, it's ter- territorial now, you know, and, and, and anyone, can I help you? No, it's my ministry. Get out of here. You know, I just want to help. Now get, get, you know, and shooing people away. Look, for everything we do in, in our lives for God, there's a season. It's a season. Remember we just talked about that earlier. Uh, there's a season for every purpose under heaven. And sometimes the season ends where we're serving God in one capacity, and then God opens up the door for a new season in how we serve him. I heard a story years ago about an older pastor who had been in this town for many years, and people had always come and listened to him preach, and his church was fairly large, maybe a few hundred people. And then one day, a young pastor moved into the area and opened, started a church. And uh, over the course of time, over the next few months, the pastor noticed that more and more people were gone. His congregation was dwindling. And then one Sunday, he steps up behind the pulpit and looks. There's only a handful of people in the congregation. And he says, where is everybody? And they said, well, pastor, they've all gone down to the younger pastor's church down the road. The older pastor said, is he a man of God? Yes, pastor, he's a man of God. Does he teach the Bible faithfully? Yes, pastor, he teaches the Bible faithfully. Then what are we waiting for? Let's go. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that story is true, but Jesus used parables to communicate truth. I know this. It was true in John's life, that kind of humility. I mean, would to God more men and women of God have that attitude? Lord, it's not my ministry, it's your ministry. And I'll serve you in this ministry as long as you allow me. But if you want to move me somewhere else, I am your servant. Wherever you send me, there I will go. There are seasons in life. Now, please, I admonish first service. Don't misapply this. Don't say, well, you know what? I went to church Sunday and pastor said there are seasons in life and sometimes we have to move on. And I'm having problems with my marriage. And so I'm going to assume that God was speaking to me about moving on now. No, no, no. You fight for your marriage. You hang in there. You pray for your spouse, especially if they're unsaved. I'm talking about ministry opportunities. Just serving God in whatever capacity. Sometimes he opens the door for a while. You might be a young mom, and right now you're wondering, well, what am I doing for God? I got, you know, three little ones and uh, diapers and bottles and, and all these things. I work constantly all day long uh, with my children. Well, this season in your life is for you to raise those kids, to teach them about the Lord, um, you know, and just be a good example to them. And then when they grow up and leave the house, maybe God will open the door for another. It would be a new season of ministry. He might lead you, actually. I've heard more than one story where uh, after the children were gone, God led a gal and her husband on the mission field. They became missionaries for Christ. John rested in God's sovereignty. Real quick, what do we mean when we say sovereignty? Look, the sovereignty of God means, first of all, he's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. And that he is in total control of everything and everyone and can do whatever he chooses to do. Now, that would scare me to death, to know God is all-powerful and does whatever he wants if I didn't also believe he was a God of a good God, a God of love, who had my best interests at heart. Now, because I believe that about God, because that's what the Word teaches, I can rest in His sovereignty, like John did. Because God is sovereign, guys, it means that nothing happens in my life or your life except what God allows for His purposes. And His purposes are always good toward us. Not easy necessarily, but good. Classic verse on this is John 8, excuse me, John, uh, Romans 8, 28. <laughs> 
where Paul said, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good because God is sovereign and he makes all things work together for good, right? Now listen, it doesn't say we see all things work together for good. It says we know it by faith. Why? Because God has told us in his word that's what's going on. Don't look at circumstances and try to judge God's love or his character by what you see around you. Sometimes God will allow us to go through horrific circumstances he's got a purpose in it and you have to cling to him and draw close to him and fall back on what you do know that he's a good and loving god but if you try to judge god's character by your circumstance satan will have you exactly where he wants you and he will beat you up all day long when it comes you will turn against god because sometimes those circumstances are not very pleasant at all and if god really loved me why am i going through this and so on and so forth Listen, if you trust the character of God, that he's a good and loving God, you will trust him to lead every area of your life. And listen, you will rest in his sovereignty, his sovereign purposes for your life. Which brings us to the second way, and we'll end with this this morning, which brings us to the second way John maintained a proper perspective in life. First, he rested in God's sovereignty. Secondly, he remembered his own humanity. Verse 28 you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not God. I mean, I told you I wasn't the Christ. I have been sent before him. Look, the second ingredient to joyful, a joyful and fulfilling life is to remember, you are not the Christ. You say, well, isn't that a little obvious? Maybe in principle. But how many times do we violate that in, our, in the daily practice of our lives. What do you mean? Well, we say to ourselves, maybe not, I'm not saying everyone does this. I know that I've done it at times, not even realizing what I'm saying, but it's in my thoughts. Um, but I know there's a lot of Christians who might not say it out loud, but say to themselves, this is how they feel in their heart, my career, my money, my ministry, my marriage, right? my kids, my life. I don't need to pray. I can handle it. Uh, I got it covered. I know it's best for my life. Well, first of all, all that stuff, including your life, belongs to God. Belongs to God. And secondly, no, you and I don't know what's best for our lives. That's why we need God. I mean, we don't know what's best for our lives. And guys, if we take it upon ourselves to handle and control our lives, we are in effect saying, I'm the Christ. I'm the master. I'm the sovereign Lord of my life. I'm in control. I can do whatever I feel is right. And because of that, a lot of people who adopt that mindset go from one crisis to the other. Their life, I'm talking about Christians now. One crisis to the other are full of anxiety and stress because they're trying to run their lives in their own strength and wisdom. They make decisions apart from prayer. They don't seek the mind of God on important issues or do the things he tells them in his word, unless, of course, it's things they want to do anyways. And then when things blow up, when things go south, when things turn bad, I have seen many of these people who were self-willed, who wanted to do what they wanted to do, I have seen them then turn against God. Because, after all, God was really there or he really loved me. He could have stopped me, you know. One gal years ago was coming to our church, had a problem with alcohol. And she told me that, well, I got into the van to go to the liquor store the other day, and I told God, if you don't want me to go, just don't let the van start. <laughs> and the van started, and so I went. Basically, it's his fault. Isn't that how interesting how we can twist things? We do what we want to do, and then when things don't work out, we blame God. No, nobody in this room. I'm just saying, in general, there's people out there. But, uh, you know. And again, when things go bad and people want to blame God, what happens? The devil has got them where he wants them. Now God's their enemy. So they're not drawing close to God. They've alienated themselves from God, which makes the stress and all the other problems, you know, even worse. It's no wonder so many Christians, their lives aren't joyful and fulfilled. 
They're trying to do what only Jesus can do, properly control and direct their life. And because of it, guys, they got the weight of their marriage and their kids and their career. Maybe some of you here. But the weight of your marriage and your kids and your career or your business, your finances. In fact, your whole future on your own shoulders. That is not a recipe for joy and fulfillment. It's a recipe for a nervous breakdown. Well, guys, look, <laughs> you are not the Christ. I'm not the Christ, all right? You are not the master and Lord of your life. And if you take that role upon yourself, if you usurp God's role, and you take it upon yourself, and you basically say, I can handle it, okay? I'm in charge. I can do it. That's pride. And, and Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before a fall. It might be a nervous breakdown fall. It might be a lot of different things that can happen. But you fall from God, away from Him. Look, guys, it takes humility to admit you can't run your own life that you have to turn it over to Jesus. That takes humility. And you know what happens? Sometimes people are so hard-headed. They're bound to determine to do what they want to do. And so God said, like the prodigal, the father said it was prodigal son, who said, Dad, I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to live under your rules. I want you to give me my inheritance. I want to go out and spread my wings. I don't want to live under your authority anymore. I want to do what I'm going to do. The father said, okay, very gracious, gave his son his inheritance, and he went out to a far country, and he blew it all on, you know, partying, fast women, the whole deal. Ran out of money. Of course, when you run out of money, you run out of friends usually. And so the only job, famine came to that land, the only job you can get was slopping pigs. If you're a Jew, it was about as low as you can go. Pigs were the ultimate defiled animals. And what happened? As he's slopping pigs one day, he comes to his senses and says what am i doing here my father's servants have plenty of food i'm going to go back and humble myself and say dad i made a big mistake forgive me i won't even be called your son just let me be a servant and the father takes him back with open arms sometimes god the ultimate father knows our hearts are you know they're worldly and a lot of things, we, we want to go out and we, we love God, and yet we think the world has something that's going to make us happy. Like Solomon. I won't get into that. For many years, he got back into the world, pursuing all kinds of things that he thought was going to bring him happiness. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes. And God says, okay, well, if your heart's in the world, you're not with me. So go ahead and do what you think is going to make you happy. And after sin pounds a person long enough, it pounds the pride out of them, and they have now a humble heart, and they're ready to come to God and turn control over to Him. In 1 Peter 5, Peter talks, I believe, about this very thing. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The word care there, casting all your care, is a Greek word that means worries, anxieties. Cast everything on to Jesus. You won't do that if you're, not hum if you're not humble, if you're proud. I can do it. I don't need to cast my cares on anybody. I'll take care of it. Well, okay, go ahead. But when you're humble, you say, Lord, I can't do this. I, I can't figure this problem out. I don't know where the money's coming from to pay the rent. Uh, my wife wants to leave me. I know I'm partly at fault here, but Lord, I need your strength. You've got to intervene here. I don't know what to do. And then the Lord comes through. John was a humble man, which becomes obvious, I think, in two statements he makes about himself and his Lord. Verse 28, I am not the Christ. It's a good place to start. I love the t-shirt I've seen over the years. Okay. Two things I Christian t-shirt. Two things I have learned over the years. One, I am uh, uh, there is a God, and two, I'm not him. You know, and 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 John, you know, he was there. And the second statement verse 30 which we'll look at next week, he must increase, but I must decrease. And because of John's humility, 
and willingness to trust in God's sovereignty. Listen, he was a man who had peace, joy, excuse me, and fulfillment in life. Guys, this stands in stark contrast, and we're, I'll, I'll finish with this really, but this stands in stark, John stands in stark contrast to a man, another man in the Old Testament named Jacob. Okay, If John is one of the ultimate examples of humility uh, in the New Testament, one of the examples of self-willed pride in somebody who fought God to not turn control of his life over to God was Jacob, right? Now, I don't have time to get into the whole story. You, most, you know it, how that Jacob, well, he was the twin of Esau. And Esau was born first. And then when Jacob came out of the womb, he was holding on to Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob or Jacob, which means heel catcher. Well, he sure lived up to that namesake. Because heel catcher came to be synonymous with a person who was always tripping people up, tripping up by their heels. They would fall so he can get the advantage to get in front of them, right? Imagine two guys running for some prize or whatever. Jacob is next to some other guy, and and Jacob reached over and tripped the guy up so he can get the prize. That was Jacob, right? And because of his scheming and conniving, he got himself into a lot of hot water at times, not the least of which was with his brother Esau. Um, He cheated him out of his birthright and some other things. And so he had to run for his life. He ran to uh, his uncle Laban's house in Padanaram, spent 20 years there, and Uncle Laban was a, Jacob met his match in Uncle Laban. You can read the story. But uh, now he's coming home after 20 years. And he, he hears, gets word that Esau is coming to meet him. And he's got 400 guys with him. Now Jacob has still got a guilty conscience from 20 years earlier. And now he hears Esau's coming with 400 guys. He's going to kill me. And so he orchestrates this scheme to somehow placate Esau and, and get out of The problem with Jacob was he never stayed put long enough to see that God was able to work, protect him, provide for him, whatever it might be. He always took things into his own hands. He never gave God a chance to work. There's a lot of Christians like that. They pray about something, but then as soon as they're done, they're right there, they're working to fix it themselves. And they make a mess out of it. Jacob was like that. He burned his bridges everywhere he went because he never gave God time to work it out. He always tried to do it himself. The thing blew up. He just ran. That was Jacob. Well, he's coming home now, right? And then he's camping this night. The next day he's going to have to meet Esau. He's afraid. And so we read this interesting story in Genesis 32, how that Jacob wrestled with the Lord all night. This was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We know that from the story. You can read it. But Jacob wrestled with the Lord all night long, and about the breaking of day, the Lord touched Jacob's hip, threw it out of joint, crippled him. What did that do? It broke him, literally, and removed his ability to run. Now he was forced to stand there and trust God to work. If God hadn't put Israel into a trap with a mountain range in front of them uh, one on either side of them the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them if God hadn't put them in this trap to force them to stand still to show them how he could work a miracle they would have scattered in every direction don't you know that don't you know God puts us in traps at times he gets us backed against the wall because where we can't run So we are forced to stand there and watch God be God. Be still and know that I am God. The implication is that you you are not. But God crippled Jacob literally to keep him from running any longer. To force him to trust God. And Jacob said, you've crippled me. I, I can't run. You can't leave me like this. You have to bless me. And the Lord said, what is your name? As if God didn't know. Well, my name is Jacob. Yes, I know. Jacob, right? Heel catcher, schemer, conniver, master of your own destiny, the man always in control, the man who refuses to give me control. Jacob, I know who you are. I'm going to rename you. I'm going to call you Israel, which means governed by God. 
governed by God. Folks, let me leave you with this this morning. What does God have to do in your life to get you to obey him? Now, he loves you so much. He wants to bless your life more than you can ever understand. But there are things that often hinder him from doing that. Things that stand in the way. Sometimes it's a career. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes God will even remove our health. So he'll, he'll take away things. To bring you to a place of absolute brokenness and surrender. Because the ultimate goal for God is to bless you. To bless you. And guys, let me just say this. If you're wrestling with God this morning, if you've come in here wrestling with God over some issue, you better hope you lose because that's the only way you're going to win. I mean, God's will is perfect. And so to fight for our will means that we are wanting to settle for something less than God's very best for our lives. We may not think of it that way, but that's exactly what's going on. And that's why the Bible says, woe unto him or her who fights with, wrestles with, uh, struggles with uh, his maker. Because you are fighting against God who wants to do his very best in your life. And sometimes he'll break you. He'll take stuff away to force you to trust him. That's a hard way to go. Much better to say, Lord, whatever you want. I'm, that's what John the, the Baptist did. He didn't fight God. He just submitted. And um, that's what we need to do. Submit to God and start submitting to his, you know, stop fighting, start submitting to his sovereign, sovereign, uh, his sovereign will. I mean, John knew he wasn't the Christ. The trick is, what about us? Do we know we're not the Christ also? Look, guys, there is a life of peace, fulfillment, and joy that all begins when you surrender control of your life to God and start resting in his sovereignty. I mean, isn't, think about this. It is so liberating when you finally just rest in God's sovereignty and say, Lord, here I am. My life is yours. You guide it. You lead it. You, you tell me where you want me to go. What ministry you want me in. Who do you want me to marry? Um, and so on. Just trust in God. He will reveal to you his will. And, like John, you will know fullness of joy because there's no greater joy than just serving and fulfilling the purpose God created you for. So next week, God willing, we will continue, finish up this section in John 3. And uh, may God give us grace. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that um, as we read your word, we learn your heart. We cling to your promises. We understand your greatness, your, your, your power, your sovereignty. How foolish to fight against a sovereign God. We're never going to really win. But Lord, we want to submit to you. Give us grace, Lord. Keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.